Well, good morning. Yes, the kids, I forgot to mention the kids can be dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, gather in the back and, and go for that. Um, it's, uh, you know, First Kings is an interesting one, isn't it? It's kind of messy. <laughs> Um, we've been sort of tracking with this King Ahab guy and you know, don't know what to make of him. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised by the messiness of it. Because we look at humanity, we look at the world around us and we go, yeah, it's messy. We look in our own hearts and we go, wow, it's messy. But also, I'm always surprised by grace. And, and I, and I want to even just as you think about reading scripture on your own, I want to remind you of one lens to look at it with, and that it's, it's one grand redemptive story. It all points to Jesus, the true king, because we see a lot of terrible kings here, and we're going to see Ahab again, but it points us to Jesus, and that's how I want us to see scripture. Otherwise, we see it as a chopped up book of a bunch of different stories that maybe uh, are helping us try to be a better person, and that's going to just crush you. But if you see Jesus, and you see it all pointing to him, then it's redemptive. And so I want us to see that, but if, last, if you were here last week, if last week was about power plays, you know, it was these wars between Ahab and Ben-Hadad, the Syrians, if that was about power plays, this week is about sulking and self-pity. <laughs> it is. Now, kids... You guys don't know anything about pouting, do you? No, of course not. Not these kids. Other kids do that, right? Well, what do you do when maybe you don't get your way, kids and adults? Say, say like, hey, I want ice cream for dinner. Mom and dad are like, no. <laughs> what do you do? Stick that bottom lip out. and Right? Y'all never do that, though, right? Other kids do that. You know what? Us adults do it, too, in more sophisticated ways. We pout, too. But guess what this story in 1 Kings 21 is about, kids? It's about a king who pouts because he didn't get his way. And we're going to see that all the fallout of that. And so we're going to see three things in this text today. We're going to see the surprisingly destructive nature of self-pity. We're going to see a God who finds us in the aftermath of our self-pity, and we're going to see a God who desires to be gracious to us in it all. So this is 1 Kings chapter 21. I'm going to read the, we'll be in the whole chapter, but I'm going to read the first 16 verses now, and then we'll work our way through the rest of the chapter together. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house. And I'll give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite said to him. For he had said, I will not give you this in, the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay on his bed and turned away with his, his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? 
And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And, and he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You've cursed God and the king. And take him out and stone him to death. And the men in his city and the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose, arose, to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to lead us through this chapter. Father, we do ask that you would guide us through your word. I must decrease and you must increase. Speak through me, a broken vessel saved by grace alone, that you would receive glory, that we would be blessed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You uh, may have seen, or maybe you haven't seen the, the title I've put to this, The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> Seems fitting, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's actually the title of, you may have recognized the title as a great American novel <laughs> called the same title, Grapes of Wrath, by John Steinbeck. He wrote that book, and it's set, that story is set in the time of the Great Depression. Uh, that's a very bleak time in American history, as we all know. But what caused the Great Depression? And there's various perspectives on what caused what and how it played out, but many would say that as you look at the 1920s, it was a very prosperous decade, and people tended to get what they want. They tend to get what they want in prosperous times, right? And the, there was historic growth in the stock market, and the stock market became seen as a place to make a quick buck, and so everybody was jumping in, even mortgaging their houses to get some money to make a quick buck in the stock market. And we know what happened. It crashed. It crashed, and then everybody did not get what they wanted. <laughs> and there was a run on the banks. The banks closed, and it resulted in some of the worst times in American history economically. It was poverty and starvation on a national level. In Steinbeck's novel, depicts this destructive aftermath through the lens of the Jode family. They were farmers in Oklahoma, forced to leave their farm uh, in just a fam time of famine. They traveled to California for work, only to find more destruction and harsh environments. They found 
big corporate business running the fruit farming business there and low wages and human beings doing terrible things to one another. There's one scene where the, there's a friend of the family and he's organizing the, the peach pickers on a strike and the big business group comes in in the dark of night and they kill him. But the son of the Jode family is there, his friend, he sees it and he goes and kills the guy that killed him and you just see how it just continues to play out. In the book there it says, at one point Steinbeck says, in the eyes of the people there is the failure. And in the eyes of the hungry there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. It's a story of destruction in the aftermath of an economic collapse. First Kings is a grapes of wrath story in the aftermath of one man's pouting. A king who wanted a vineyard but couldn't have his way and destruction ensued. The grapes of wrath of a different kind. You see, humanity, we tend to, when we feel feelings of guilt or shame or we get self-focused or we can't get our way, we can fall into times of self-pity which can lead to all kinds of destructive thoughts and actions or patterns that not only hurt us, but those around us. And now it, mu- it may be much more subtle than what we see here, but no, no doubt no less destructive. So let's look at this first point here, the, dis- the surprisingly destructive nature of self-pity. And I say it's surprising because we don't see it all. We, we, see this, we, don't, we don't think we're affecting other people when we need to have a little pity party. We've all had a pity party, haven't we? <laughs> We've all had those, but we're not an island. None of us are an island. What we do affects those around us, even if subtly, even if we don't see it. You know, the world would say, you have your truth, and I'll have my truth, and let's just let each other be fine and okay. But the problem with that is sometimes our truths don't agree, (laughs) at least in the world. Because here, Ahab's truth was, well, this vineyard's close to my palace, so I can have it, right? I deserve that. You ever had those feelings of, I deserve this or that? Well, that's Ahab carried out with that. And he, he had, this is a king, if you remember last week, he had just come off of two really awesome victories in battle, remember? Over the, the mighty Syrians. They were a little bitty group, a little bitty army against this massive army, and they won twice. And Yahweh, God, did that, of course. But then Ahab decided he was going to do what he wanted to do with Ben-Hadad. That was God's prisoner, not his. And he let him go and did what he wanted to do. And God said, okay, Ahab, your life for his now, remember? And Ahab went home vexed and sullen, angry and rebellious. Why? He didn't get his way. What do we do when we don't get our way? What do we do when we're just kind of feeling crummy or kind of self-pity? I'm going to go buy something. Yeah, right? We laugh because it's true. I'm going to go on Amazon and get me something really nice. Ahab was going to go get a vineyard. And so he went and tried to get it. He was addicted to feeling good about himself or trying to make himself feel good and having his way. So he went to get a vineyard. And it made sense on the surface. It's like, hey, it's right here. Like, look, I'll pay you for it. I'll give you a good deal. I'll give you another vineyard. I mean, it seems like he's trying to honor Naboth, but Naboth said no. 
And it wasn't merely because he just wanted to hold on to it. Maybe that was there, but actually in the Old Testament with the uh, Israel's land, it was allotted to the families and the tribes and the people because it was God's inheritance for them. And so Naboth was actually trying to honor the Lord by saying, no, this is to remain as an inheritance because it pointed them to, it reminded them of the true inheritance. They're God's kingdom. So quick point here. Sometimes we forget our inheritance, don't we, in Christ, that we have an inheritance. And it's beautiful and it's eternal, but when we forget it, when we get self-focused or inward-focused, if we have those pity party moments, we forget what we've been given. And guess what happens? We go try to make our own inheritance. We go to try to get our own things, and we live a life of taking and needing others to come through for us because we've forgotten what we've got in Christ. So let's not forget our inheritance. I remember some years back, I was working in sales, and I got passed over for a promotion. You ever had that happen to you? You get passed over for something? Well, I decided I was just going to have a little pity party about that. And, you know, it's not going to hurt anybody. And I guess it didn't really hurt anybody, but it kind of did because it changed my whole demeanor for a while. It affected how I interacted with my customers and my coworkers and even my family for a time. I was just, I was, like, little things would frustrate me. You know that, right? You get those little things and you're like, oh, why is this making me so mad? But it happens when we get inward. You all know what I'm talking about. We need others to come through for us. We get short with people around us, and we realize that we're not an island. We've been there. And it's surprisingly, it's surprising the destructive nature of self-pity. It's very subtle. In Naboth's case, he got a heavy dose. (laughs) He got a heavy dose of someone else's self-pity. He was taken out. Sadly, Ahab became passive. The king became passive. Now, the king was meant to protect his people, y'all. The king is to protect. And he went inward, went to his room, and sulked and allowed everything else to play out. So Jezebel, who's probably not the one to give over uh, rule of the kingdom... Not a great person to listen to, his wife. And we know, if you know anything about her history, she's not the right one. And you can see how she, how she handles this. She's like, you're the king. You can do what you want, but fine. If you're just going to sulk, I'll go get it for you. And so she does. And she takes matters into her own hands. And Naboth is slandered and he's murdered. This is just a, something as an aside here, too, for maybe us particularly as men we're meant to protect those around us. And if we get passive on that, then sometimes people get hurt. And so let's not be passive. Let's be protectors. Let's be people who point others to the Lord and truth and care for them. And Ahab could have owned up to himself. He could have said, like, yeah, I need to get over this. I need to tell my wife that this is not a good idea. Somebody's going to get hurt. But he didn't do that. And he could have, even after the letters went out, he could have gone to those leaders and said, to stop, this is bad, this is bad, this is my fault. He could have taken ownership, but he didn't. And all of that plays out. Injustice seems to reign. Even a whole community is caused to sin because of this, because of one man's pity party. But then 
we see the cold ending to this. And it says four times in three verses, Naboth is dead, just very coldly. But then all of a sudden, Ahab feels better. He gets up and he goes to his vineyard to explore his new place. It's, it's just a cold situation. Now, we could, we could come away feeling pretty overwhelmed or depressed over just the bleakness of the story or, or maybe even the bleakness of our own experiences in this world. Things we've seen, things we've experienced or gone through. We could go, oh, what do I do with all this? Well, Mr. Steinbeck in his novel, one of his characters, he has one of his characters say in conclusion to all of the messiness that they've seen, says, well, there ain't no sin and there ain't no virtue. There's just stuff people do. Are we ever tempted to just go there and say, you know what, maybe there's really, is God even there? Maybe there's no such thing as sin and virtue and good and bad. There's just stuff people do. We can get cold and just depressed over the way we see things happening in the world. Just a bunch of people doing stuff. But even in all of that, there's the inward ache over injustice that speaks of there must be a God. There must be justice. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Uh, he was once an atheist. And he, he says this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. said, how had I got this idea of just or unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What, has, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? See? must be a measuring line. There must be one with the measuring line of justice. And praise the Lord, there is. And he shows up in this chapter. So we don't end with what we, where I stopped re reading earlier. <laughs> the chapter doesn't end there. We'll pick up in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria, Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring judge, uh, disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Bashan, and the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin." And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. It's heavy. But God is bringing justice against evil. He's there. Now, that must have been a strange experience for Ahab. The last time he and uh, Elijah interacted was all that happened on Mount Carmel, right? And it's been a few years, and Ahab's sort of feeling better about himself, and he's going to go to his vineyard, his vineyard. And you can imagine when he looks over and he sees 
Elijah's standing there. I wonder what went through his head. I, I wonder, I wonder if when he was walking through that vineyard, maybe the grapes were still on the vine. I wonder if he at, at, at all had a thought of these were grown by another man, a man who I allowed to be killed so they could have it. I'm, I wonder if that thought was there. Maybe he just had to turn it off so that he could go and actually enjoy this vineyard. And we see that that probably was the case because of his re reaction to Elijah. He says, you found me, oh my enemy. He calls him his enemy. He calls Elijah the enemy of Israel, even though he was the prophet of Israel. When we sometimes go down that hole of self-pity, we can have a similar experience. You know what I mean? Where you go down that hole and you feel like everything and everybody's kind of out to get you. Or at least you've got that mindset. Like, everything's not going my way. Everybody's out to get me. Everybody's calling me out. and every, Nothing's going my way. We blame shift. Ahab calls Elijah the enemy of Israel. And here the personal enemy of him. Elijah was actually sent by God as a friend. Believe it or not, even though that was a nasty pronouncement, he's trying to love him and call him out of all this mess. But sometimes we can't see that. We can't see that when it comes to us. It's hard. We see everybody's out to get us, it seems. You remember in the beginning, Adam and Eve, they were in a garden. They were in a vineyard of sorts, right? Our first parents. And they chose self over God in the beginning. And they chose their own way. And we've, been, we've inherited that way of thinking ever since then. And just like here where God finds Ahab, God found Adam and Eve. But you remember, he asked them a question. He said, where are you? Where are you? And the answer was, I heard you and I was afraid. You see, when itself is dominant, we are going to be living lives of fear. Fear will be the dominant experience of our lives. And we will see everyone and everything out to get us. And we'll blame shift in self-defense. Remember, Adam said, Eve made me do it. <laughs> it's our fault. And she said, well, the serpent made me do it. It's his fault. And kids, we go, my brother made me do it. <laughs> we do. We all do that. And we're all responsible for what we do. And until we're able to admit that we're the worst sinner in the room, we're going to live a life of fear, blame-shifting, and joylessness. God sends Elijah to find Ahab. And we can see that, yes, God is just, but we need to see it as a rescue mission. God is coming to us as a rescue mission. The, uh, on June 28th of 2005, four Navy SEALs were out on a reconnaissance team mission, and they were ambushed in northeastern Afghanistan. A quick reaction force was dispatched, but Turbine 33, is what it was called, carrying eight Navy, uh, Navy SEALs, was struck by a rocket-propelled grenade. And then the commanders called in the 75th Ranger Regiment to run a rescue mission, Operation Red Wings 2, for the recovery of Turbine 33 and the su subsequent search for the remaining compromised Navy SEAL team. The Army Rangers have in their creed, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. So they go get everybody, dead or alive. They bring them back. And God doesn't miss anything. He restores Naboth's name here. He finds Ahab. 
And it might feel invasive sometimes when he finds us. But will we be able to see the Elijahs in our lives as friends or enemies? So where do we go? Where do we go when we've been confronted with our failures? How can it be made right? Well, we see here the third point of the sermon that God desires to be gracious to us. Let's see what's left here. It's astounding grace, actually, if we listen to what's happening here. These last few verses, I'll pick up in verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Now when Ahab heard the words, the words of Elijah... He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I'll bring the disaster upon his house. This is astounding grace because the, the writer of 1 Kings has made a point. They put like this little editorial note in there. Made a point to remind us of just how wicked Ahab was. He was the worst of the worst. The worst. And God had mercy and grace on even him. And he repents. He sees his failure. And God has mercy. Now, if... if we may be sitting here going, like, I don't get this. Like, why, how does God have mercy on somebody so wicked? I don't get it. Well, then you're beginning to get grace. <laughs> because grace, by nature, is radical. It's amazing. It's inexplicable. God chooses to give grace. Now, there's a couple of things to deal with here first before we really, again, wrestle with what does it look like to be made right for us? We could be tempted to look at Ahab's repentance and go, yeah, I don't think it's real. He's just faking it. He's just sad because he got caught, right? Is this real repentance? Is he honestly sorry about sin? Well, guess what? We don't have to figure that out. We don't have to make the judgment call over Ahab's repentance or our own in that case. But it could lead us to wrestle with that and go, you may have had these thoughts before. I, I wonder if I really meant it. I wonder if I really meant it when I was repentant. Did I say it right? Did I mean it? Did I need to do it more? Do I need to say it more fervently? If that's you, I want to redirect your thinking. I want to redirect your thinking off of how well you are doing or not doing and onto a God of grace and mercy. See him. That is who he is. And he's unchanging in that. So let's not get caught up in how good am I doing? And see him. Secondly, we need to wrestle with this. That last verse there. I don't know if it caught you. And it may have if you've got children. Where we see that the disaster was held off of Ahab. But was going to be on his sons. And we go. Are my kids going to be punished for my sins and failures? You may have wondered that. That may have hit you in this moment. And I want to make this clear. If we're in Christ. It's dealt with. It's finished. There is nothing left to do. There is no more punishment. We are free and redeemed in Christ. And so our kids aren't going to pay for our sin. Now there may be 
natural consequences, things that happen, right? Those things are, are real. But they will not be paying for what, or paid for uh, the sins or failures of our lives. And also we need to take note of the fact that Ahab is different. He's the king of Israel. He's a representative of the people. And so he was actually held to a different standard. He sits in a different office. But guess what? We're under a different king. We're under a different king. King Jesus. How is he different? How can, he, how can we know he desires to be gracious to us? How can we know it? Well, there's some surprising parallels here between Naboth and Jesus. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable. You may remember, it's about a vineyard. A vineyard owner sets up a vineyard, and he hires it out to vine, grow, uh, vine growers. Remember that? And they grow vines, and they produce fruit, and then the vineyard owner sends servants to collect some of the produce of the vineyard. And the vine growers are like, let's kill them. We can keep the vineyard. And then finally, the vineyard owner sends his own son. He's like, surely they'll respect my son. And they go, well, this is the heir. If we take him out, then we can keep it for good. And that's what happens in that parable. Remember, Jesus is telling that parable and saying, that son that was killed is me. Naboth was taken out for his vineyard. Jesus was taken out. A little bit later, Matthew 26, Jesus, like Naboth, is wrongly accused of blasphemy framed by two uh, false witnesses, just like Naboth. He, too, was taken outside the city to be killed. And why? To stand in your place. To stand in my place. He did it for you and I. He suffers with the Naboths of this world. And he suffers for the Ahabs, the sinners like us. So what do we do with our sin, our failures, our guilt, our shame? Don't go trying to mask it with a, a vineyard. <laughs> you don't have to go try to numb those feelings by buying something for yourself or getting something or thinking you can control your surroundings. Don't try to figure out how to make your repentance good enough even. <laughs> Look to the one who says, it's finished. <laughs> it is done and it was for you. There is nothing more to do except receive the gift of grace by faith. So, in conclusion here, it was uh, said that John Steinbeck really struggled to come up with a title for that book that we now know as The Grapes of Wrath, but his wife gave it to him when she was uh, listening to an old hymn, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. You'll recognize it when I read the first couple of lines. I won't sing it, don't worry. <laughs> Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And there it is. You know what? The uh, ne next weekend is Martin Luther King weekend. His very last speech, the night before he was assassinated, he quoted that hymn. He said this in that speech. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But I've been to the mountaintop, and I've looked over I've seen the promised land. Now, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight 
I'm not fearing any man because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, the God who is just and merciful. The grapes of wrath were filling up the wine press. Like Martin Luther King, he was calling for justice and his blood was shed. Naboth's blood was shed here. But then the blood of Jesus came and it speaks a better word. The blood of Naboth, just like the blood of Abel, cries out what? Guilty. But the blood of Jesus cries out forgiven, loved, mine forever. Which blood is your identity? If you've heard his voice this morning, I urge you to respond to him now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's, it depicts messy events and things that we see then and we see now in various ways and we see ourselves. Help us to see you. Help us to see the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word, a word of forgiveness and grace and mercy. I pray for anyone here this morning who's maybe not heard that voice before that they'd hear it loud and clear and respond. For all of us here who struggle daily with our own failures, guilt, shame, or pity, (laughs) that we would be reminded that the blood of Jesus does continue to speak a better word over us, a word of forgiveness and grace. Lord, I pray that in all of this, you'd be glorified and we would be blessed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.